Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Aha! Hi everyone, I'm Susie White, a product innovation coach, author and podcaster in the food and beverage industry from Melbourne, Australia. Today, I'm talking with Tom Dawkins. He's the CEO and co-founder of Start Some Good, a social enterprise that enables cause-driven crowdfunding, innovative partnerships, and social entrepreneur education. Their goal is to get people together to help change their world. In this episode, you'll learn about the key characteristics of a social enterprise, what makes for a successful crowdfunding campaign, and how building a business with social purpose has the power to not only strengthen your business idea, but also make a meaningful difference to the world. And in the aftertaste section, I think back on my chat with Tom and share three key lessons that could help you with social enterprise building and crowdfunding. So welcome to the podcast, Tom. It's it's great to have you on today. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me, Susie. Let's set the scene. Uh, now, the listeners know we're going to talk about how to kickstart a social enterprise and we're going to talk about crowdfunding, but tell everyone a little bit about yourself first, Tom. What is your background and what did you do before you got to launching your business Start Some Good? Before I got to launch Start Some Good, I was launching other things. I've kind of long been a starter-upper of things. I'm a bit intoxicated by those beginning stages of things. In some ways, that's why I feel like Start Some Good I found just the perfect thing for me because I can kind of grow, I can get beyond the starting phase with Start Some Good, but I still get to like vicariously live those really early days with the people using our platform to launch. But I guess what set me on that path was, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a very kind of politically um, aware and, and purpose-driven household. Both of my parents worked for were public servants in different ways, but were deeply purpose-driven um, in the work that they did. And I think it really set me up with a mental model, you know, that work for me was always a place in which you live out your values and make a contribution to the world uh, and create an impact. And I didn't know what that could possibly look like for, for a while and was pretty disengaged and, you know, didn't know what to do with myself through much of high school. And then partly in response to my disengagement, decided to go on an exchange. And while there, I was invited to attend this incredible event called the State of the World Forum, where I met a couple of Nobel Peace Prize winners and met Mikhail Gorbachev and just this slightly mind-blowing, intoxicating experience. And I was one of 32 young people and who were, you know, told that we were there to represent the youth of the world. That kind of fired me up with a desire to make a contribution and to do something, but I still didn't know exactly what that was. But as I reflected on that experience and thought about the incredible young people I'd spent that week with, I realized that kind of what I had experienced was largely how youth leadership happens, which is that it's haphazard, it's tokenistic, and it's deeply biased towards wealth. Because while there were 32 of us there, and, the, and we had this incredible kind of diversity from one perspective, you know, boys and girls and people from the developed world and the developing world and East and West. And I realized every single one of us had parents who could afford to send us for a year on exchange. And I got to thinking about what it would look like to give everyone the experience I had had of knowing that your voice matters and that you have a role to play and that you have an opportunity to make a difference and to create the future that you need. 
And I've literally been working on that ever since. It's taken a bunch of different forms from opening the first co-working space in Australia to founding a youth media organization and experimenting with online community building, you know, in the late 90s, um, or sending youth journalists out on the campaign trail during federal elections. And it's still the mission that I'm pursuing with Start Some Good, trying to build more infrastructure around fundraising and launching and fostering greater innovation for social change. Wow. I love that your joy and your love of starting things up have absolutely collided with your passion and this moment of inspiration from very young age to really make a difference and do some good. I feel like that really beautifully describes the business that you're now in, which is Start Some Good. But would you take a moment and just explain to the listeners what that business is and what you do with it? Sure. So there's a couple of different parts to our business, but essentially we're a a platform, an agency that works to accelerate the pace of innovation for social change. And we do that working on kind of both sides of that funding divide. We work with innovators, whether social entrepreneurs or community organizations or individuals who are starting a project or enterprise which is designed to create a positive social and environmental impact and helping them design those enterprises through our Good Hustle program, you know, help, helping design go-to-market strategies through various coaching programs that we offer, or running their crowdfunding campaigns at startsomegood.com. You know, in some ways, kind of our secret formula is both the technology and the coaching. That you know, the technology is just a set of tools, but you don't empower people by just handing them a set of tools. You empower them by, how, by teaching them how to use those tools confidently and successfully. And that's why we have the highest success rate in project crowdfunding globally, because we take the time and have a focus on ensuring that people understand what they need to do to succeed. But we also work on the other side of the fence, working with institutions of various sorts, businesses, foundations, local governments, to invest in programs that build the capacity or accelerate innovation within a particular geography or around a particular issue. So, for instance, we run the Dream Starter Program on behalf of ING Australia, which is Australia's most um, successful go-to-market accelerator for social enterprises. We've run a program called Pitch for Good Parramatta the last four years launching online crowdfunding campaigns for local social enterprises with the funds raised on the night matched by the, the city of Parramatta. And we've done that in Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Sydney as well. And yeah, a variety of other programs that in various ways build the capacity of or help launch social impact initiatives. And let's dive into that a little bit more because it'd be great to understand what you mean by that. I've seen on your website for Start Some Good, you talk about the idea that this is really for social enterprises. Could you break down for us what is a social enterprise and are are there different types of those? Yeah. Look, social enterprise is a contested term. Different people define it in different ways. We have a pretty simple and I think useful definition, um, which is about a doing rather than a being. So it's not a status. It's not a, It's not the equivalent. You could be a for-profit social enterprise or a not-for-profit social enterprise. It's not a tax status or an organizational structure. It's a doing. And it means that you are pursuing social or environmental impact using trade as a vehicle. So you are, you are selling a product or service in order to create that social impact. We then think of two main genres of social, of social enterprises, essentially, which is those that we call redistributive social enterprises versus what we call embedded impact social enterprises. So the redistributive social enterprises are conducting a business you know, over here in order to fund social impact work over there. It's not the business activities themselves that are making a social impact. And sometimes they're making a social, there's sometimes, you know, these types of social enterprises can, can slip into doing social harm because they're, fo- they're so focused on generating a profit in order to redistribute that profit 
to their social mission. So a lot, there's a lot of famous social enterprises in that category. That's Tom's Shoes, buy one, give one. You know, you sell the shoes over here in order to give one away over there. It's Thank You Water, selling bottled water here in order to dig wells over there. Um, and the other type of social enterprise is Im- embedded impact. And that means it's the actual business activities that are driving the social impact, not just the redistribution of the profit created by those business activities. So those are social enterprises that have as their mission creating employment opportunities to people otherwise excluded from the, the workforce, whether that's you know, ex-offenders or recently arrived refugees and migrants or those with a, with a disability of various sorts. So social enterprises in Australia in that category include people like Fighting Chance or Substation 33 in Queensland. Uh, or street in Melbourne. Or it could be the product itself has been redesigned or created to create a social impact. So that could be Ocean's End bikinis who make their bikinis out of recovered plastics from the ocean, taking that waste product, turning it into an an actual product as a way of getting it out of the water. So the actual manufacturing is driving the impact or the employment is driving the impact or the design of the product itself is driving the impact, which is kind of where we sit. We've rethought crowdfunding as a social impact tool and we invested an enormous amount of our effort in creating that impact through the kind of high-touch support that we offer, which is definitely not the way to build a highly profitable crowdfunding platform, but is the way to increase the pace of innovation for social change, which is why we exist. And I was just thinking of another example then. I interviewed uh, Bronte Hogarth from Raise the Bar, and she would you say she's an example of the embedded uh, model in terms of she takes wasted coffee grounds and turns them into coffee scrubs? Precisely. I think she's also giving a donation, to be honest, to, to a cause. So I think she's doing a bit of both. Let's talk about this because one of the things you did mention is you do offer online training courses and coaching, which is great. It's not just here's the knowledge, but it's also the, the support and adding your own expertise to guide businesses through that startup phase with the, the Good Hustle course. But what are some of the things that maybe if I was interested in starting a social enterprise and I, what are some of the things that I might need to consider when setting up my business in that way? I mean, it's a combination of the two things you'd consider if you were just starting any normal business, but also if you were starting any social impact project. And that's why social enterprises are going to come to dominate most segments of the economy over the coming 10 to 20 years. But in terms of getting them off the ground and doing them well, they're one of the hardest things you could ever possibly do because they combine what are probably the two hardest things you can do. Just starting a business that doesn't fail is incredibly difficult. You know, the overall failure rates in the economy are very high. Over a, a five-year time horizon, it's something like 80% of all businesses fail and over 90% on, over 10 years. So that's really hard. But in some ways, business is easy compared to the actually making a dent on complicated social issues, actually trying to solve homelessness or domestic violence or racism. And so you've the social entrepreneur is the kind of, you know, kind of the, the, the crazy individual who's decided that maybe by doing these two incredibly hard things together, we can weave something that is actually more robust and, and more sustainable in the long run. And it's what we have to do because it's just, you know, because the commerce is where the majority of the money is. And so the idea that we can kind of only do social impact with philanthropy or even with philanthropy plus government, you know, the not-for-profit sector and the government sector, is, I think, diluted because it's the actual commercial sector that's driving most of the negative impacts. And so we need to kind of get in there and redesign commerce. And I think the institutions that are doing that redesign are what we generally know as social enterprises. Let's dive into the crowdfunding now because 
as you say, you know, that your goal is ultimately to accelerate social impact and change. Uh, how does that fit with crowdfunding? And what are some of the benefits of crowdfunding? Crowdfunding, I think, is playing a really important role in the social impact sector and a lot of sectors now as kind of seed funding. And, and that's because in some ways the social kind of impact sector has lacked that angel funding layer that is so crucial to driving commercial innovation. And it's not a coincidence that I actually started Start Some Good while living in San Francisco, because it was there that I really began to understand how that commercial innovation ecosystem works in one of the more innovative places on earth. I was actually working in Silicon Valley. And I realized kind of for the first time in my life why part of why it was so hard to innovate for social impact, despite the urgent need for innovation in a world where the pace of change is ever accelerating and the things that were proven to work yesterday are unlikely to work tomorrow. And so we desperately need to build this capacity for innovation. And everyone knows that as well. Everyone says the right things. And yet we, we really struggle with it in the social impact sector. And it's because in a way everyone's trying too hard to correctly interpret the future and to correctly decide what is going to happen in the future. And everyone's too afraid of being seen to waste any precious money for social change in things that don't work. But innovation is built on things that don't work. You know, it's really interesting having lived kind of in San Francisco and moved back and, you know, a lot of pe- you meet a lot of people who have pretty mythic ideas of Silicon Valley as just this place where super smart people gather and do really clever things. And I'm fond of telling them that the Silicon Valley is actually the world's largest concentration of bad ideas and, and failed ideas because that's what an innovation ecosystem actually looks like. It looks like trying lots of things and the majority of those things won't in fact work. But the only way to differentiate those that will and those that won't is to actually try things. And I've actually become convinced that there's a law of innovation, which I've cheekily been calling Dawkins's law at a couple of recent conferences. Um, <laughs> but it's this idea that good ideas look like good ideas, but great ideas look like bad ideas. So good ideas look like good ideas because they're kind of sensible. They're built upon the status quo. They fit with our general perceptions of how the world works, only they improve a piece of it. We go, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. Good ideas are great in a way. But what we also need is is genuine innovation, which is often things that break the status quo in some way or challenge the status quo. And most people will hear an idea like that and think, that probably won't work. You know, those sorts of ideas challenge our assumptions about the status quo. They they often attract opposition because they in some way challenge or seek to rebalance power or wealth or, or, or control. And those people who say that probably won't work will be right most of the time. Most of those ideas won't, in fact, work. But hidden in amongst those ideas are the genuinely transformative breakthroughs we need across every different type of social change. And the only way to differentiate them is not to sit with a crystal ball in a room with a bunch of supposed experts. It's to try things and then to learn more rapidly from them. And that's the role that angel investors play in Silicon Valley and in startup ecosystems around the world. There are people investing their own money at a very early stage in order to essentially run an experiment in the market and see what will work. And then if that shows promise, there's venture capitalists who will examine that data and make somewhat more sensible, more data-driven decisions. And that's kind of where we're stuck in the social impact sector is almost all our organizations and funders want to play that VC-like role. They want real data already. They want impact measures and they want to pick just the ones that stack up in terms of their impact measurements and their data. And that's cool. That's great. That's a really important role. But it only really works if someone is funding the experiments that that data is derived from so that those later stage actors can play their role in the ecosystem. And we've really lacked for that in the social sector. And as I was thinking about these things in San Francisco, and I looked around and thought, who's doing a great job of supporting the new? And I got really excited about what Kickstarter were doing with creative 
entrepreneurs. And I thought that's exactly the kind of support that social entrepreneurs need as well. And that was our starting point. But we still really think that crowdfunding is a really powerful tool to essentially test ideas, particularly for social enterprises that ultimately rest on someone being willing to pay for their product or service. If you can't sell something, you're not a social enterprise. If you have to ask for donations, you're, that's awesome. You know, I, I think there's a really important role for not-for-profits, community organizations, and charities, but that's what you are. If you're a social enterprise, you're trying to sell people things. The time to try and sell something to people is not after you've made it because that's too expensive and creates too great a consequences for failure. It's to do it at the earliest viable stage, which is after you've designed it, after you've thoughtfully tested it, after you're ready, obviously, to introduce it to the public. But crowdfunding provides that kind of very lean direct tool to actually share your vision, share your product, share your idea with the public and see if they want to come with you on this journey. Now, I've written down Dawkins' Law of Innovation, by the way. I'll credit you with that one. <laughs> Put that out there for you. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah, you might be able to help me popularize that. Exactly. Good ideas look like good ideas. Great ideas look like bad ideas. That was a terrific explanation of crowdfunding and the benefits, particularly, as you said, for the angel investment, the early funding of running experiments, getting up and off the ground. I feel like some people, maybe also in the food and beverage space, are looking for that. They're using it as a bit of a scaling up tool as well. And they simply think, well, there's a pool of people with a lot of money sitting there and just waiting for me to run a crowdfunding campaign. But I've heard it's, it's a lot more difficult than that. And in fact, you have to build the community around you during that campaign. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Tom, and sort of what's really involved? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think people have to get the analogs wrong in their head around the role played by platforms like ours, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, or whoever. And they often think it's, it's like something like Airbnb. And what I mean by that is that online fundraising or launching a product online, much like you know, renting out your spare room or your holiday house online, used to be really, really hard. And it was hard in two distinct ways. It was technically hard. Back then, there were no like simple drag and drop website builders. You had to essentially hard code most things. And if you didn't have those technical skills yourself, you have to find someone who did and they were expensive or hard to find. And you'd have to build in your own payment infrastructure and the ability to sync with the calendar and the ability to accept credit card payments. And they were more rudimentary and harder to install. But even after you'd completed all of that and you had a, a functional booking page and calendar and so on for your for your holiday house that you decided, you know, you're only using four weeks a year, let's try and rent out the other 48. It was still really hard to get anyone to realize that fact and to actually drive attention towards your, your one property website in order that someone would actually book it. And Airbnb, and this is why they're brilliant um, and, and why they've grown so fast and been so successful, has made both of those things easy. It's technically easy. You just go in there, you know, photos, pictures. It'll look fine. It'll be mobile responsive. It'll work everywhere. And they've also taken care of the demand side. They've driven a lot of demand because people are very motivated to find places to stay. If you're, going, if you're visiting Melbourne for the weekend, you've got to have a place to sleep. And so, you know, Airbnb just had to be one of the places that was on our radar as a place where we could solve that problem. The motivation existed. People were already doing that proactively. It's quite different, of course, when it comes to philanthropy and, and social change. And any type of crowdfunding, in a way, is not like that. It's only half like that. So Start Some Good, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, etc., have all made it technically easy to launch fundraising campaigns online. Just as with Airbnb, you don't need any uh, technical or design skills. You can come in, upload some pictures, write some words, 
it'll look great, it'll be mobile responsive, it'll work everywhere on all browsers, etc. No worries. But they haven't solved the second problem, which is what you're speaking to. And this is probably the single greatest divide between people who succeed at crowdfunding and those that fail. It's those who think that that problem has been solved, that that challenge has been solved for them already, versus those who embrace crowdfunding as the way they're solving that problem, who see crowdfunding as the tools for building their community. And so the people, who, the people who are trying to find shortcuts around challenges like building your community are never going to succeed because you can't have a shortcut around building your community. That is, in fact, the core challenge of launching a new social enterprise is to find those early customers and find those early adopters. And the idea that that can ever just be automated or provided to you is, is such kind of false thinking because the real job of crowdfunding, the reason they're called crowdfunding campaigns, because the job of crowdfunding is campaigning. It's not just listing, it's not just like sharing your brilliant idea on a directory and then thinking that people are just going to beat a path to your door or shower with you, you with money. It's the actual getting out there and building that community, sharing your idea. No one has your level of passion. No one has your level of expertise. No one has your level of credibility to drive this. No one can provide that for you. But then having the right allies, we think, makes a real difference. And it's why we work with people to help them think through what that looks like and what that outreach campaign needs to consist of and what the story is that's going to inspire support. Those things are not necessarily easy or obvious to do if you don't have that background or experience. And we think a lot of the best ideas come from people who don't have experiences in fundraising. They have experiences with the actual social challenge that they're taking on. They're experienced farmers or they're experienced cheese bakers or they're experienced beekeepers or they're experienced community organizers um, or whatever the case might be. That's that's fantastic. They're pro often not experienced fundraisers. Um, and that's why just providing the tools only gets you so far. Um, but that's why we really embrace the work of helping people solve that problem. It's time for a quick break now to thank our sponsor. When we come back, hear how you can maximize the success of your crowdfunding campaign. I'd like to say a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible, the Monash Food Innovation Centre. They can help you fast track and de-risk your new products in the Australian market or export markets like China. Did you know that only one in 10 food and beverage products survive the first year of launch? That means nine out of 10 fail. If you'd like to be one of those businesses that gets it right, then the Monash Food Innovation Centre can help. It has cutting-edge technologies, product development services, and runs capability workshops to upskill business owners and employees in the art and science of food innovation. Whether you're a food startup or a large corporation, check them out at www.foodinnovationcentre.com and see how they can help grow your business through innovation. Welcome back. We've heard from Tom Dawkins at Start Some Good about the different types of social enterprises that you could launch to make a social impact through a commercial business. And he's explained how crowdfunding acts like startup angel investment to help test early ideas before you start investing heavily in them. Now let's dive into what makes a successful crowdfunding campaign because I've seen different platform rates vary greatly from 10% up to 40% of campaigns being fully funded. And so I asked Tom, why is there such a difference? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think you see a few, you see a few tiers uh, in crowdfunding and, and that also speaks to different models. There's keep what you raise where you set a goal, but the goal is kind of 
aspirational and not very meaningful, you're keeping people's money no matter what happens. So people obviously need very high levels of trust versus all or nothing, where you set a goal and all the funds raised are conditional on you reaching that goal. People will pledge, but none of the pledges are processed or, ca- or will be processed if you don't reach that goal, which allows you to make a much clearer pitch with much more credibility and commitment behind it and is a much lower risk threshold for supporters because they know you'll only get those funds if you can actually follow through on the impact that's created. Now, part of the terrible success rates in crowdfunding in general is far too many people are choosing keep what you raise campaigns for all or nothing projects. But if you're launching a new food product, you probably can't do it with any amount of money. There probably is a real-world threshold that you need or you can't go to your manufacturer, you can't go to your suppliers, you can't get the help you need, you can't make it happen. And so a lot of people are failing because they're choosing keep what you raise campaigns for personal reasons, feels less risky for you, feels less dangerous that you might fall just short. You know, yeah, those things are scary. But what's really scary for potential donors is the idea that we give you money but you never follow through. And so that's why the lowest tier of platforms are all keep what you raise platforms, all or nothing. So generally you get this band of keep what you raise platforms that are in the teens. That's your Indiegogo, your Chaffed, people like that, with only like 15%, Indiegogo, 13% of projects reaching their goals. Then you get a band of all or nothing platforms. Generally, your Kickstarters, Rocket Hubs, uh, et cetera. And they're often in the kind of 25, as you said, 25 to 40% band. Kickstarter is 31%. And then there's just a few platforms that pop out of that. And we're one of the very highest, as I said, where 53% of projects reach their goal. Now, part of that, it's not magic. It's not that our tools are better. So we, and, and we just try a little hard to make people understand what it is they're actually getting themselves in for. So I have to say, part of that is created by the we engage with people some often to help them realize that the time is not right, that they're not ready necessarily to launch the crowdfunding campaign, that they might need to go away and validate their idea a bit more or build their community a little bit more. You know, we often ask questions like, who are your early supporters? Because you should know them personally. You know, your, your very first supporters are, are pretty much never the internet. And you just have to think, and, and to know that's kind of in, intuitively true, just think about yourself and how likely would you be to fund a project that literally no one else had funded if you didn't have a relationship with the person behind that project? That would feel a bit weird, right? Be like, no one who knows this person has, has contributed. Not their mom, not their dad, not their siblings, not their best friends. No one is chipping in. And if they can't answer who those day one donors are, they're definitely not ready to launch. And so sometimes they don't launch. And so... Uh, some of our success rate is created by the kind of failures that don't happen as a result of that engagement. And some of it obviously is just preparing people better to actually do what they've got to do to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you've really touched on there that there is a right stage for you to step into these sort of campaigns. What is the right stage? Do you have a few key pointers, as you said, that there's a minimum viable product. I've seen early investment by friends and families, but you're really looking for the next leg up in terms of maybe scaling up or getting some product in place. What are your sort of must-haves before you say you should really go into crowdfunding? So nothing's a must-have in the sense that people violate these best practices all the time, you know, and, and can pull it off either through sheer hard work or having amazing personal networks, you know, and having a lot of credibility from a previous part of their career or lives. Um, so it doesn't look like they're ready on this project, but they've actually got those deep personal credibility and relationships and so on. But in general, what you described, I think, is exactly right. The best time to crowdfund is where you've taken, it's not like step one, not I had a cool idea and now I want you to pay me to work on my idea. 
Sometimes people do raise money at a relative idea stage. That's normally a friends and family round. That's using crowdfunding as the tool for friends and family. So you've got to decide what you're trying to do as well. So I think in many ways, the stages are all the same. It's just when do you want to use crowdfunding as a potential tool for what stage? So crowdfunding is a great tool for friends and family. Potentially just knowing that's what you're doing. It's not your public launch. You're not expecting to raise money from strangers. You're raising money from your personal community to, to help you get started on this journey. But where I think is the best moment, the most powerful moment is, is when you've kind of got a bit beyond that and you have validated, you've created your product, you've validated it, people like it, and now you have an opportunity or a threat sometimes, but you know, let's keep the more positive, exciting moment. You've got an opportunity to step it up in some way, but that requires some kind of investment up front. No one could expect you to just take that step on your own. That might be that you need to buy a van to now be able to deliver your product. You've been selling it in your local markets but the big opportunity is to get into some boutique food shops. But for that, you need to be able to do deliveries. It might be that you have the opportunity to move to a new location or to simply invest in the next, in the next level of packaging. Whatever that, whatever that kind of next step that's possible for you is. And that next step might just be that I'm ready to offer this product to more people. I've been doing it in my local market. I'm just ready to offer it to the world. We had a great one like that earlier this year, which was an Indigenous-owned streetwear label out of Byron. And this was their public launch, but obviously they put a lot of effort into the designs up until that point and really, you know, and getting great photos and good videos. And it'd be the same with, with serious food businesses. You want to, I mean, food in some ways has one of the highest bars because, like, we're going to eat that. So, you know, if you're going to convince people sight unseen, you're going to make things in, all, in the right way with the right, obviously, hygiene, then it's not going to put me or my family at risk and it's going to be delicious. Showing me a bit of evidence, I think, is a pretty reasonable bar. And so by selling it at your local markets, for instance, it means you get testimonials, you get video of you selling it. You know, I go, oh, yeah, people are buying it. It's great. You know, this is what our customers have told us. Now I'm ready to offer it to you beyond my local market. Um, and that you've put the, you've kind of put a few of those pieces. And, and those pieces include things like the brand that really do make a big difference in, in how people see and read things. And often, you know, you just have to put those hard yards in to invest your own money use your own skills to, to get it to that point where you're ready to do the public launch and to convince people that this is, this is something that they want. That is super clear because I feel like you're right. A lot of people think, I've got an idea. Let's go get money. It's like, whoa, whoa, hang on. <laughs> Let's try and bring that to life a little bit more before you suddenly get it out there. So a little bit of proof first is good in terms of people around you and small scale before you really start ramping it up. And you mentioned food and beverage and clearly my listeners are food and beverage businesses or people who just love learning about new foods and beverages. I know that starts and good works across many industries. You, you've already mentioned a few like fashion and technology and beauty care and uh, you know other government organizations. Is food and beverage, do you find that is a harder one to work with crowdfunding or not necessarily so? We love food project, projects. And in terms of like what does well, we see them do really well, actually. We, they're really exciting and they've got a great product. Um, I think foodies love discovering new things. So as a, as a kind of category and a, a mindset, it's a good audience, you know, to be going after that there is a group out there, much like in technology, um, who are not just interested in food, they're interested in what's new in food. I mean, they're all the listeners to your show, obviously, who are interested in, you know, what's happening and so on. So I think that creates relatively fertile ground. You know, so if you are at that stage, it doesn't mean that everyone's just throwing money willy-nilly at any old random stuff. There's lots of great food online. There's lots of great food in the world. So you've got to be ready to present yourself on your own terms as one of those great foods and new experiences and interesting approaches and great stories amongst all the others, impact and non-impact. I think having a great social purpose can be one of the things that helps you cut through. But you also have to get the food piece correct. 
you know, which is why I say it is the combination. But if you can, if you can, you know, really tell a great story about both, you know, in a way, it, it helps people identify the early adopters for you. You need to get the ball rolling. But then the peer-to-peer sharing does lift campaigns up. True, either there's like a vibrant community of people in all sorts of different interest groups online who can be reached and inspired, and, and they're kind of checking stuff out and buying things every day. Um, you just have to actually figure out where they are and to target them. And you have to be ready to tell a great story to convert them. And once you get the first kind of group through, they begin sharing it with their networks for you. And so it helps you identify those early adopters because anyone who is one of your early adopters probably knows others. And so crowdfunding is fabulous because of those, that peer-to-peer mechanism. That is so relevant to food and beverage businesses and products because there's an entire industry out there dedicated to TV shows and magazines and online sites and uh, restaurant guides to show and highlight new products for foodies who love finding and discovering new food and beverages. Exactly. And the same is happening on the social enterprise side as well. That People are very excited about and passionate and inspired by social impact businesses. You, you know, you're working in really fertile ground when you're combining those things. That is an encouraging way for us to wrap up this podcast. Now, Tom, thank you so much for walking us through that. I personally have learned a lot about crowdfunding and also Start Some Good and how we might accelerate social impact and change through that platform. Now, if listeners are really interested in maybe working with Start Some Good and learning a bit more about what you do, what's the best way they can get in touch with you? And have you got any sort of programs running now? Yeah, we do actually. Uh, so we have an online social enterprise design course called Good Hustle. And we'll be recruiting for a female founders specific program that will kick off on November 1. And then another general kind of summer program that will kick off on December 1. And that's a 10-week program, although both of those will actually run for a bit longer with a, a break in the middle for Christmas and New Year. So we're not expecting everyone to you know, work all the way through. But we do think you know, summer can be a great time to begin to plan the year ahead and, and design that social impact project and social enterprise. And so that steps through all the key pieces in terms of your, your theory of change and issue mapping, business model and target market identification and use of social media and video, go-to-market strategy and personal self-care um, practices that are so important. So I definitely recommend people check that out. And if, if you're at the stage where you've already got a, something that you've designed and you're ready to introduce, we'd love to help you with that, of course. Just check out startsomegood.com. You can see all our learning programs at startsomegood.com slash academy. Um, and you're very welcome to connect with me as well on Twitter, um, where I'm at TomJD or on LinkedIn, Tom Dawkins. Fantastic. I'll be sure to also put those links in the show notes so that people can click on those and, and go to the right sites and the right places. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Tom. That was uh, really inspiring and um, I've learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much, Susie. It was my pleasure. Aftertaste, the sweet taste of success. <sighs> Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with Tom Dawkins from Start Some Good and summarize three of the key learnings that I picked up from our discussion. Lesson number one, a social enterprise can differ from a not-for-profit or charity by using business to create a better world, be that as a redistributive enterprise that funnels profits or products to make a social impact or as an embedded enterprise, and that's one that does social good in its very way of operating, for example, in the materials it uses or the people it employs. Lesson number two, running a successful crowdfunding campaign is not about build it and they will come, like Kevin Costner in that Field of Dreams movie, if anyone is old enough to remember that one. 
While crowdfunding platforms have made the technology of setting up a campaign online much easier, it's still very much up to you as the business founder to do the work of building up a community of supporters and customers who love and want what you do. That's kind of why they call it a campaign. And you remember Bronte Hogarth from Raise the Bar in episode 22? She said that running her own successful crowdfunding campaign felt like she was managing a full-time job. Lesson number three. I know you want investment money as a business founder. That's why you're interested in crowdfunding. But think carefully about the merits of choosing a keep what you raise campaign versus an all or nothing option, especially if you can't deliver on the pledges you've promised your contributors without the full amount of funding. Now, for food and beverage businesses, your crowdfunding pledges can be about providing the first batch of your finished product. And if you only get half of those funds, you may not be able to even make, pack or send anything at all. And so while Keep What You Raise campaigns feel less risky to you, because hey, at least you get something for your efforts, they can be harder to attract investors who understand they might be left with nothing at all. I'd love to hear from you on this topic. Have you run a successful crowdfunding campaign? And what were your key lessons for success? And if you haven't, why not? What's holding you back? You can give me a call on the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast hotline. It's 0388444823 and leave me a message. Well, that's it for this episode. Many thanks again to my guest today, Tom Dawkins from Start Some Good, for sharing his knowledge about social enterprise and crowdfunding. If you're interested in starting up a social enterprise or crowdfunding, there's a terrific free download called The Food Entrepreneur's Guide to Crowdfunding on the Start Some Good website. So I'll put the links to that and to the Good Hustle courses that Tom mentioned in this episode's show notes. Thank you again for listening. If you like what you heard, please be sure to tell a friend and join me next time to eat, drink and innovate. Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. 